movies or how i spent my babysitter money i'm jess i'm jordan and this week we're talking once, once upon, upon a time, time in hollywood, hollywood. Uh, we are literally recording this one the day after we recorded toy story 4 yeah. So uh, we pretty much did all of our recap since we haven't recorded these episodes together uh, yesterday. You guys heard it last week. Jess, you ready to just dive into this? Let's dive in, although we have to do a little bit of housekeeping. It's quite late here. We've had a really busy day. No dog of the podcast. Oh, Some dog of the corrected. podcast is coming down the stairs right now. That's a Charlie. We have a Charlie two weeks in a row. Yeah, he wants to be let out the door right now, but I think he'll get over it. Yeah. He, so, he did the circuit a couple of times today. Did he? Yeah. So we've got a dog of the podcast. Um, I do want to state this week in film history. All right. What's up? So as of reading, um, as of today, which is recording on July 28th, these are actually quite cool. In 1932, White Zombie, first feature length zombie film directed by Vic- Victor Halperin and starring Bella Lugosi, is released in the U.S. But I'm assuming Bella Lugosi did not meet a Brooklyn, gor- Brooklyn gorilla in that movie. Unfortunately, no. Uh, well, that's funny because in the movie today, uh, there was that clip with Dean Martin, and all I could think of was <laughs> Dookie! <laughs> <laughs> Mercy. For those of you who don't remember, that was the faux Jerry Lewis calling the faux Dean Martin in Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. Yeah. Do yourself a favor. It's on YouTube. 1951, Walt Disney's animated musical film Alice in Wonderland released. Wow. Introducing (laughs) a... I know. Introducing a generation of children to the magic of mushrooms. <laughs> 1954, On the Waterfront, directed by Elia Kazan. Elia sta- Kazan. Elia Kazan, my bad, starring Marlon Brando and Ava Marie Saint, is released at Academy Awards Best Picture 1955. Have you seen that one? Long time ago. I have seen it. it it's been a while for me. It's a great movie. 1957, Jerry Lee Lewis makes his first TV appearance on The Steve Allen Show. Well, there we go. 1971, Dutch ends censorship of Blue Movie. Well, okay. There you go. I I, don't know what that one is. I don't either, but I had a good time looking those up. Well, cool. So um, let's dive right in to Quentin Tarantino's... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, you want to talk about your kind of complicated feelings with Quentin Tarantino? I don't really know how to verbalize them other than they're very, very complicated. Yeah. I am c- acutely aware that he is quite good, that mm-hmm. he is impressive, that he m- makes major stamps in our film, um, in our filmmaking, that you, I mean, that he as a director has a very clear stamp mm-hmm. um like i said today it i didn't have to know he directed that i knew he did right so it's kind of like they say on project runway you needed like we need to know that that was you without mm-hmm. knowing it was you but in a sense that i can all, i know it's him almost in a negative way in the sense that i can i can he, i can i feel like i can hear him say how cool everything is would you say it's like more in a way of like it's so him it's distracting yes i can see that you know Any person who loves movies in their 20s has a Pulp Fiction poster somewhere in their room. Well, because Pulp Fiction is brilliant. Yeah, Pulp Pulp Fiction, I think, still holds up. But, like, that to me, Quentin Tarantino, I wouldn't... 
I mean, it's hard for me to say, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to preface it by, this isn't a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think of him even as much as a filmmaker. To me, he's more of a DJ. Because all, okay. of his, all of his movies are taken from other obscure movies and genres and things like that, and just things that he loves, and then he mixes them into his own movie. Yes. So, I can, yes. Yeah, so, and quite literally, uh, I can, like, a lot of parts, a lot of his movies like beat for beat come from other movies that you're not sure where they came from. Yeah. Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because what he does very well, and it's kind of what he does with new Beverly is that he takes things and he's like, remember, remember when society used to think this was cool. Why don't you think this is cool anymore? Because I think this is awesome. Right. And that's something that I think he does very well. And, and me saying that I don't think of him as a filmmaker isn't to say that I don't think, I don't think he's a good filmmaker because I think he's a fantastic filmmaker and I think he's a very good artist. Yes. You know, with what I said, if I were using that as a criticism, that would almost be like saying, well, this person isn't a real painter because he didn't create his own paint, you know? Right. Baloney. Right. Um, but yeah, he, it, all of his movies are distractingly Quentin Tarantino and every time you've ever heard him like accept an award, it's always about how awesome he is. Uh, I remember when he accepted his, his Oscar for Django Unchained, he was like, I want to thank all the people who, uh, who come over and read my scripts, not because you give me great notes, but because it allows me to hear the scripts through your ears. And it's like, that is actually a very valid thing to say, but you kind of picked a really like weirdly insulting way to say that. Right. Um, I, and I, I totally, I agree with that. And I can think of more movies of his that I like. Mm -hmm. I liked Django. There was parts that I had a, I had a complicated relationship that it was a, that it was Tarantino who created Django. Yeah. That was bizarre. Yeah. It, it definitely was a white guy makes a slavery movie. Yes. But it, I, there was a lot of merit to that movie. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Christoph Waltz is just, Right, is Perfect. brilliant. Yeah, um, and Jamie and Jamie Fox mm -hmm. was incredible in that film. Yeah, um, film. Ugh. Well, Ugh. we're talking Tarantino. We have to get a little pretentious Ugh. on this. Ugh. Um, I love Kill Bill. I especially Volume One. Mm -hmm. I love. <laughs> Sorry, we got a rowdy Charlie. Oh, we have a very rowdy Charlie. He has a lot of opinions. He also has a complicated relationship with Tarantino because his movies are loud. Yes, um, I loved. I I liked a lot of Inglorious Bastards, but mm -hmm. something that I'm realizing about a Tarantino movie, other than Kill Bill and um, Pulp Fiction, really, and the movies I just said that I liked, I have never gone back and seen them. Mm -hmm. um, the and the movies that I don't like, I loathe. Right, you are not a Hateful Eight fan. I think it is. I th I don't understand why I watch that. I don't know. I am bummed out. I don't ever get that time back. Mm -hmm. And I really, there's something to be said too about a filmmaker whose movies are consistently three hours. Mm -hmm. To me, um, he, that is not, it is not good editing on oneself. And you know that there's been things edited out. Oh, yeah. These movies would be five hours long. Um, the original work print cut of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was four and a half hours long. And Why? Why? Especially for, I mean, we'll get into this in a little bit, but for this movie being, it's 90% a slice of life movie where, yeah. where it's more about just people living in the world, which I think it, this does that better than a lot of other movies that try and do that. Do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how would you make that almost five hours long? Um, I like, I like Tarantino's movies. I've gone back, you know, everybody's gone back to Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs quite a bit. Um, <sighs> 
Yeah, I um, I think one of his best movies is probably one that I don't revisit as often, which is uh, Jackie Brown with Pam Greer. Jackie Brown is great. Yeah, and I, that's actually one I'd actively like to rewatch because it's ve- it's very similar to kind of like a slice of life thing. It just has more of a plot. Um, right. But of course, he adapted that from an Elmore Leonard novel. Um, I like Kill Bill 1. I don't love Kill Bill 2, but now that it's been 10 years since I've seen it, I would like to revisit it and see if I like it any better. Um, I really like Inglorious Bastards. I like Django. I am okay with The Hateful Eight. Uh, you put it great whenever we saw whenever we saw it, and I think we saw that on Christmas Day or day after it, maybe. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, I I mean, I love the score for that movie. Ennio Morricone did a fantastic score. Oh, um, agreed. Yeah. Uh, the score and the cinematography were the best parts of that movie. I mean, the performances were good, but that, that really, suffice it to say, the only Tarantino movie I don't really like is Death Proof. Um, okay. It, yeah. I, that's fair. I don't dislike Death Proof. Death Proof is fine, but again, I think this is the point that I'm getting to with Tarantino as a whole, is that even the movies of his that I don't like, I can still point things out and they're like, oh, that was really cool, which is why it's hard for me to just dismiss any of them outright. Because um, like Death Proof, I mean, we've talked about it before. When do you ever see Kurt Russell show up and be like, oh, that sucks? Totally fair. Uh, um, you know, as a red-blooded straight heterosexual man uh you gotta love the women in death proof um totally but at the same time it has that really uncomfortable rape joke that they just leave hanging like oh the girl in the cheerleader outfit gets raped and that is very uncomfortable for me yeah um i'm sure it's very uncomfortable for women more than me but you know we're talking about me right now but you know uh fair (laughs) but also too um something that we talk about in intimacy coordination is yes there are when it comes to so anything that's that traumatic and that's something that I want to definitely talk about in this movie is when we talk about things that are grotesque and traumatic you definitely your valid your experience is completely and utterly valid Mm -hmm. yes it might be more triggering for a woman or someone who has been through rape Mm -hmm. but that doesn't take away your experience of it and then the fact that no means no (laughs) rape is rape and that's violence Right. Yeah. So you're I do. I don't want you to just say that. I think recognizing that maybe a woman might be more sensitive to it is valid. But I also don't think it's fair to, you know, if you were ever in a situation where you needed to score that, mm-hmm. I think, you know, it needed to it needed if you're going to score that scene, it needs to be on a slate that you know that's coming. Yeah. So it's not to say that's not traumatic. And that's something about a Tarantino movie is he puts awfully traumatic things Mm -hmm. in his movies consistently and they come out of the blue yeah and that's something that happened in this movie too kill Mm -hmm. bill not so much right we knew there's going to be blood splatter all the time that was a rule that was and so it made it a little less real yeah these movies are so violent that even as someone who works with violence who has choreographed severe violence Mm -hmm. that i am not okay with his choices, and I feel like it comes from a patriarchal white man place. I can I can definitely see that. And, you know, the interesting thing is that whenever Quentin Tarantino talks about things like that, mm-hmm. like, he definitely, he definitely is more of a, in that regard, he seems more of a genuine person than he is a genuine artist with that. Because, like, <clears throat> he seems like he's very understanding for people's 
uh, views and opinions on that. I don't have citations for this, so maybe I'm wrong, but this is my understanding and recollection. But he still puts all that in his art because essentially, why shouldn't I, you know? Yeah. So it, it's a very interesting dichotomy. Um, but let's get into this one. Let's rate it. What do you want to rate this one in? I, my initial thought was a frozen margarita. I could do that. I was almost going to say Cadillac. Hmm. Oh, I meant an impasse. <laughs> Should we rape paper, rock, scissors? Yes. So, rape, paper, rock, scissors. Go shoot. and shoot. Shoot. All right. Ready? Rock, scissors, shoot. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Ah, uh, uh, frozen margaritas. Just threw paper, I threw rock. <laughs> okay, how many frozen margaritas would you give this movie? I would give this one a two and a half. All right. Um, why? Um, I. This was two different movies. Uh-huh. I do feel that it's. It was brilliant in the sense that it was a movie that kind of took you on this ride and you weren't sure where the ride was going. I appreciated that this was fiction to hopefully get us on board. However, I felt like Tarantino really relied on the audience knowing this story. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I thought it was widely unfair to say you should know all these actual people but then I'm going to throw you all these fictional people and then I need you to just figure that out I can totally see that and for someone for myself I have um not spent a lot of time so if what real quick for those who might be wondering uh so again we for those of you who may be new to us, we we tailor the first part to help you, maybe encourage you to go see this movie or on your way to the theater. What's a good log line for this movie? Like, what's the one to two sentence description of this movie? Uh, a fading actor and his stunt double best friend try and cling to their careers, all set to the backdrop of the Manson of the Sharon Tate murder by the Charles Manson's family in 1969. Right. And if I read that, then this movie lied to me. Mm-hmm. And that's why I give it a two and a half. Yeah. And I've- and if it was set on the backdrop of the Charles Manson rise, mm-hmm. there was nothing, there was nothing really in the streets other than just some pretty girls in short shorts and tank tops. Mm-hmm. Um, hitchhiking. There was nothing on the news. There was nothing. There was nothing that created the environment that set that up for success. Well, and I think that's the interesting thing about doing it about the Charles Manson murders is because that did just come out of the blue. Like that is that is one of the reasons why you know when people talk about you know that's when the '60s died. You know, like you hear a lot of ex hippies talk about. They talk about in 1969 it was uh, Altamont, which was the Rolling Rolling Stones version of. Uh, of Woodstock they tried to put on where the Hells Angels killed a guy. Um, and then Altamont and then the, the Tate murder, uh, because both of those things just happened out of the blue from, uh, from a culture where you wouldn't expect it to happen from. So to that, so to that degree, I see what you're saying. I don't think there was any better way he could have done that if this was the story that he wanted to tell. Um, so I cut him some slack for that because nobody nobody knew who Charles Manson was. I, I'm going to get into that here in a little bit. Um, I should probably rate this before I go off. Uh, totally. And, the, and I know that was a really succinct reason why mm-hmm. um, I had 
those thoughts about this movie. So I just wanted to make sure no. that like I was done. Oh, absolutely. So yes. How many frozen margaritas no. would you give this movie? Just making sure I'm on the same page. I did not cut you off, right? You know, correct. I just wanted to make sure that it was clear. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, I'm going to rate this one higher than I think I might actually feel about it because Ooh. I think this is one that's marinating with I'm me. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm going to give this one like a three and a quarter. Really? Yeah. Holla and it, at me. Why? Again, the for the things that I like about it, even though to me, I think I think the reasons I didn't like it may be subjective rather than objective. Um, I think that this is a very subjective movie. I don't think people are wrong for saying how much they loved this movie. Uh, and this movie has something like an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh-uh. Yeah. Uh-uh. Yeah. And I don't think they're wrong. It just didn't really connect with me. And even on the Tarantino movies that I don't just love, there are things to really like about this. And there are sequences in this movie that I think are just brilliant. Um, there are performances in this movie that I think are just great. Uh, it continues to prove how actually good Margot Robbie is. That I will get on board with, yeah, sir. Because uh, to me, Margot Robbie is someone kind of like... So the, the one of the previews that played before this movie was for the new Charlie's Angels, which does not look good to me. Which I want to be on board with because I like Elizabeth Banks well, and I like what she does. And that's exactly the point where I'm going with it. Ooh. Is, yeah, because Elizabeth <laughs> Banks is somebody who could have easily fallen into playing the ditzy blonde roles for her entire career. True statement. And she worked really hard to show people that she has genuine talent. She just happens to be really hot too, right? Yeah. That's how I feel about Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie could have been, could have just been ditzy blonde sex pot for her entire career. Totally. And then Margot Robbie has worked her ass off to make sure that people see that she's, she's actually a talented artist. And I give her all the credit in the world. I'm, I am on board with that. I am a huge Margot Robbie fan. I think she's fantastic. And yeah. for those of you listening, if you have not seen I, Tanya, I think it's on Hulu and Amazon. Y'all, it is so It is so good. good. So good. And she is really good in it. Yeah, she there, is really good in it. There's a moment in there that plays almost like comedy, but it's so tragic to me. It's the part where like, it's a sequence of like uh, Jeff Galuli, like just constantly like hitting her. And then oh her, yes, and then just like it's the sequence, and she's narrating at the same time. And then there's a part where they're having sex, and she looks at the camera, and she's like, "But my mom hits me, and she loves me, right?" And that scene is played so fast; it's like a Scorsese thing, where it's almost like a black comedy. But it is so tragic, just the way that she says it, and the aloofness that she plays as she says that. It's just great. She's wonderful. She is wonderful. So Margot Robbie is top to bottom fantastic in this movie. Um, she plays somebody who you believe is on the rise because that's what Sharon Tate w was. She was probably going to have a really solid career in Hollywood before she was murdered. Yeah. Uh, and even, even with her being married to Roman Polanski, I don't think that was the reason why. No, because she had those things before him. Right. Um, now, his, his association didn't hurt. Right. Uh, but I thought that he cast the real people very well. Uh, we had talked about, he has Damian Lewis play Steve McQueen. And a lot of the times whenever these people show up, it's really short. Lena Dunham was in this movie. I know. Lena Dunham. Um, Bruce uh, Dern. Yeah. Um, uh, Luke Perry. Luke Perry. Uh, Kurt Russell. Um, Zoe Bell actually has a role. Yeah. Uh, and some of the other Manson, uh, followers uh harley quinn smith who's kevin smith's daughter 
Uh-huh. Uh, and then Maya Hawk, who we both loved in Stranger Things. Yep. And then uh, Mikey Madison, who plays Max on Better Things. Yep. Um, but he cast those roles very well. This movie was very well cast. Um, yes. Brad Pitt was amazing in this movie. Yeah, I'm a huge Brad Pitt yeah. fan. Now, Leonardo DiCaprio is good. My thing with him in Tarantino movies is he plays very hammy roles in Tarantino movies. Yeah. Um, I remember when Django came out and everybody's like, how could they not nominate Leonardo DiCaprio for an Oscar? And I'm like, did you see the movie? He was all over the place. Yeah. Uh, he was like, he was pouring hot sauce on the scenery. And not, that's not to say it was bad. It fit for that movie, but it's like, no, this isn't like a powerful performance, you know? And that and that's how... Now, I, this role was better for him. This role was definitely better for him. I do think that it was a little over the top quite a bit, but like the moment where he finally hit his stride on the TV show that we were following him yeah, while he was filming... It was awesome. He, and he was great in it. And yeah. it again, just another reminder that Leonardo DiCaprio is a very good actor. I think that he he just has to have the right script to really shine. Yeah. Um... You know, and he, but he plays Hammy really well, or he ten, he can ham up things very well because he is such a celebrity and such an icon. Yes, that I think he has to work really hard at pulling himself back sometimes. But when he does, he's just great. Agreed. Um, so there were a lot of things I liked about this movie. I just didn't connect with all of it, and I think that I think that this is a movie that is perfect for having on if you're. If you are spending an extended amount of time in the kitchen, you just want to have a movie on in the background. I disagree. Yeah? I think this movie is super distracting. You look up and you don't know what the crap is going on. Well, but that's that's why I say, because because you mentioned, like, you know, it takes you on a ride. Totally. You know, and so for me, it for me, it's like, well, since none of it really gels together that way, I think it's fine to just jump in somewhere because it's not about, it's because it's not about following a plot from point A to point B to point C. The movie is just slice of life in a day in Los Angeles or like two days in Los Angeles with some flashbacks and then the Manson stuff at the very end. I completely disagree. If I just had this on and wasn't paying attention to it and I finally like start, just like looked up for more than a minute at it, I changed the channel. Fair enough. Again, I don't think anybody is wrong for the way they feel about this movie. Yeah. I think this is an incredibly subjective movie. Uh, On board with that. I think that there's a lot that you can appreciate from it from a film perspective. I think there's a lot you can appreciate it about it from a history perspective up to a certain point, I will say. Uh, yeah, and I will say that there's all these loose ends that kind of just get in there. Mm-hmm. And the loose ends... This isn't a movie that ends with a bunch of loose ends. No. And that's really impressive for a movie that is almost not on the same planet. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that a movie that is based off a of fact but is actually total fiction. Well, I will, I will say, so, and we'll get into that part of it at the end, but right. I, you know, of course he named the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because he's a huge Sergio Leone fan. Uh, which is, you know, Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time in America. Robert Rodriguez also had Once Upon a Time in Mexico. The Once Upon a Time in title is a very popular thing to do. Famous. Very famous. Yes. Um, But the way that he puts it on the title screen at the very end, after the ending that we saw, I think it cements it as like, he's like, it's almost like a wish fulfillment movie, which is the same thing that he did with Inglorious Bastards. He's like, wouldn't it have been great if they would have stopped Hitler here? Um, Right. You know, I'm. I think Django was also a wishful film movie. I don't feel comfortable talking about it in that regards right now. I so that. I'm going to skip past that. 
Totally. Um, I think that this was a wish fulfillment movie of like, wouldn't it be great if? So here's my fairy tale version of it. Yeah. I am on board with that and I I don't think he I don't think Tarantino introduced it in the most successful way to get his audience on board. No, I'll I'll agree with you there. Again, I have very complicated feelings about this movie. Um I'm gonna stick with the three and a quarter right now because I could see me pos I don't really feel the urge to watch this movie again. Uh, but I could see myself watching it again on down the road and being like, oh, I kind of like it better now. But I could also see it going the other way. Totally so there's a, there's a part of me that's like, maybe I just want to leave it where I am right now, where I enjoyed my experience at the movie and now I can move on with yeah. my life. So before our break, let's talk a little bit about music. Right. Um, let's talk about that. And also, if you can um, give us a little bit of a breakdown. So at like what point, kind of give us, give us a little in, like inside, te- like if you could pick out some maybe technique or something that you thought was really interesting. Um, I really loved how you were talking about last week about how Randy Newman, he, the way that he chooses his orchestras in such a specific way Mm -hmm. and how intimate of a composer he is and how you, how, how wonderful that is for an animated movie that basically takes place in children's rooms and very small, small, tiny parts of our world. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's best. Like learning that was so cool. Well, I would love to be able to talk about that more on this movie, but Tarantino has made like two movies in the past that have an actual score. Right. Um, and this is not one of them. Yeah. Uh, he, he tends to be a needle drop filmmaker. Uh, he, ha- he is an extensive music lover. And from what I understand, he has an insane music collection of jukeboxes and 45s and really? uh, yeah, wow. 33s, things like that. Uh, he should he should meet Stuart Davis, right? <laughs> um, so he he chooses the music for his movies very well. There were parts that felt scored, um, but I but there's no like even additional music credit by in this movie. Um, so I don't I don't know if he uh, if there was anybody who actually played instruments on here. I know like in Django Unchained, uh, I had a friend who I used to work with at Sam Ash Music in Hollywood, uh, Fermin Chavez, who's a fantastic woodwind player. Mm-hmm. And he got paid a hundred bucks to just go in and uh, do some flute cues for I them can't. To, for them to drop in in random places. By the way, uh-huh. so I've known that story for a long time. A hundred dollars. I mean, I'm probably getting the number wrong. And he okay, oh. anything less than like ten thousand. If you're gonna be like the woodwind for that movie, y'all, the budget for Once Upon a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was ninety million dollars. Right. Well, now, what I want to clarify is that he didn't go in and score any of it. Literally, the music editor was just like, "I need you to play a flurry right here," and so he would literally, "Okay, cool." Okay, five hundred. Right. I don't know the actual number. The actual number isn't important. Uh, for the terms for the terms of this conversation. Okay, fair enough. For about score. Yeah. Um, Not how Jessica doesn't love Tarantino. Right. <laughs> Guys, I was I was like almost dreading this episode. Well, I mean, we'll get more. I want to be very specific. So again. Um, for those of you who have followed us for a long time, we do not talk about these movies, but from watching it to recording. And there, I am so deeply disturbed by a part of this movie that I was, I almost got up and left. I wasn't aware of this. I, w- I am, I am upset. 
Is about this, a part of the movie. Is this a spoiler part? Yes, okay. I can't say it. So hopefully, if you're in the car going, I hope you're like, "Ooh, I gotta go! I gotta see this yeah. thing that like made <laughs> I, made I her did, almost leave." I think you just gave the audience a cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, okay, so back to music. Back to music. Um, soundtrack heavy. Yes, yeah, soundtrack heavy. And like every Tarantino movie, the songs that he chooses are just great. Yeah. Um, they fit the they fit the mood perfectly. His music editor, I think he works with the same guy on pretty much every movie. It, it's great. You know, there were a couple places where I could hear that they extended out part of the song, and it was really seamless. Yeah. Uh, to the point where I'm not even sure if they did. I just think they did. Right. Um, so I wish I could talk more in depth about music on this movie, but it's just like, oh no, it's a Tarantino movie. The music placement is great. Now, there were there was a sequence in there mm-hmm. uh, where Brad Pitt goes to the Spawn Ranch. Yeah. And that plays out like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre almost. It really does. And and that's probably my favorite sequence in the movie. I Um, can see that. uh, But his sound designer, I'm pretty sure it was the sound designer, maybe the music editor, it was just like tones that would come up. They almost sounded like scraped metallic tones or like what I would try and recreate on the synthesizers as a scraped metallic tone. Whenever somebody would like come out from a building, whenever the camera would pan and you saw something new, it would just come up there and make this tone. And it wasn't anything like, you know, like John Carpenter Halloween. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was just a really low, ominous thing and it just kept happening and it did, it built the tension great. Do you feel like that might have been sound design then? I think so. Let me, let me look up the sound designer because that's the thing. Whenever you're talking about things like that, uh, composing and sound design can really start to blend in, especially modern composing. A lot of what I do, because you know, I work with orchestras. Uh, you know, I do guitar-based scores. Um, I do a lot of synthesizer scores and a lot of really sound designing scores, where it's not about like writing melodies all over the place. It's more about just creating a tone and ambience. But in doing that. Uh, it tends to clash sometimes with what the sound designer wants. And sometimes the composer wins, sometimes the sound designer wins. Uh, I worked on one movie where the sound designer got his hands all over it and basically just did synth tones all over the place, and I ended up losing out on that. And I'm just like, oh, that would have been nice if they would have given it to me first, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? But it, I basically say that to say that it, uh, it really blends in together. Um, I am looking up sound apartment right now. Uh, who... So they have Harry Cohen as the sound effects designer. So he he possibly did some of that. Uh, they had, let's see here, probably wouldn't be a sound mixer thing. Uh, they had you know sound recordist uh, Paola Magran. Uh, they had Leo Marcel as a uh, sound effect designer. Um, Michael Minkler was the re-recording mixer, which he was kind of the one who's actually doing the final mix on the dubbing stage. Uh, and then they also have um, Wiley Stateman, who is the supervising uh, sound editor, and he's worked with Tarantino quite a bit. So okay. that could that could have been him. Um, again, it was all it was all very subtle. Uh, a lot of the sound design in this movie, it wasn't anything just like massive, but you know the gunshots all sounded great. They sounded like Indiana Jones gunshots. Yeah. Uh, you know, whenever they were playing on the TV, whenever they were watching things in the TV, uh, you know, it definitely sounded like a 70s TV. There were some distracting things, though. Yeah. Whenever they were actually watching uh, the TV episode and they were commenting on it, uh, it was all placed back way in the back and it had this weird reverb on it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it was really distracting. I thought the sound went out. Yeah, it 
I don't think that was mixed very well. I can tell what they were wanting to do, and I think I can tell what happened because I've put out mixes that sounded like that too and gotten gotten my ass kicked on it. Yeah. Uh, is It was an ADR session, meaning that they went back in and they recorded it in a studio, kind of like we do here, but in an even more dead space yeah. uh, where you can't hear the room at all. Uh, and it sounds like a super close version of the NPR sound. Yes. Um, and then they have to put that in there and they're like, well, it's got to sound like it's in a room. And they just put a reverb on there and it didn't quite sound right. It didn't quite fit right. I think that's what happened there. So that was distracting, but everything else was great. And then again, the Spawn Ranch sequence, uh, those tones that happened were great. Yeah. Um, and then the fight at the end, the sound was great on that. It was yeah. visceral sound. Yeah. Uh, it, some of the sounds hurt. And we have a Madison here. We have a second. We have both dogs of the podcast, everybody. Um, so since I can't really talk about music as much anymore, I want to hear your thoughts on the stunts here. Um, but can we talk about that before the spoiler section? Hi, Madison's making a bed under the carpet. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were here with you were with us last week, uh, Jordan has a new rug in the studio, and the dogs love it. Mm-hmm. It's very soft. It's a gigantic dog bed. Um, so um, I actually I want to talk about the stunts because I actually want to break down for the folks. Um, I want to break down. There's a lot of fire in this movie, mm-hmm. and I want to break down a fire burn. All right. Yeah, there um, were some good fire burns. In there's this movie. some crazy fire burns, but I also want to say when they're the most effective, mm-hmm. and also uh, one that I found less effective, but it was brilliant in its usage because it was, uh, in theory, a little bit safer, but it was also probably really difficult to light. So mm-hmm. anyway. Um, We'll definitely go into stunts. Um, I think Zoe Bell is wonderful, but um, and she was the actual coordinator on this. She was the actual. Coordinator has on has this. she? Does she? Is she the coordinator on a lot of his movies? No. So this is this like one of her first like coordinator credits? Then no, 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 no. Okay. No, no, no. Because I know no. obviously she works with him on almost all of his movies in some form or fashion right. since Kill Bill. I think this, I don't know if this is her first one coordinating for him. This is not by far her first coordinating credit. But if you think about, if you think about The Hateful Eight, which is his most recent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she was way too involved and had so many months of learning to drive that multiple um, horse wagon yeah. that she didn't I don't think she was she was more invested into the role um by the way driving a team of horses is very difficult um I was I did a tv show recently um that'll be coming out I think this year I'm in a a tv a Dolly Parton's tv show and I drove a four up or a two up and driving a two up is really comfortable for me but once I get to four that's when I start that's a little bit out of my light range she drove like an 18 horse Mm-hmm. And that's incredibly dangerous. Um, and she had to get specially trained on that. So um, it's a completely, I don't remember if, it, or maybe it was an eight horse. Regardless, it's too many horses and it's very dangerous. So she definitely didn't do the hateful eight. Um, can, so I just looked her up on IMDb. Can I, can I mention some of her credits? Always. So she was, uh, I think she was Xena Warrior Princess's stunt double. That that was her first stunt credit. Yes, that was. Um, so that so Zoe is um, Australian. Mm-hmm. That was filmed in Australia, and she was Lucy Lawless's stunt double, and that was her very first credit. Yeah, she worked with uh, Tarantino first on the Kill Bill movies, where she was Uma Thurman's stunt double. Correct. Uh, and that was stunt coordinated by Keith Adams. That's right. Um, so and so you know she's worked on a lot of stuff since then. Uh, the Tarantino stuff, uh, um, The Kingdom. Uh, Penny Dreadful, or it was a different Penny Dreadful than the TV show. Um, so interestingly, uh, she was the fight choreographer and stunt coordinator on a movie called Bitch Slap, 
Never heard of it. Okay, nope. Uh, she's done stunt coordinating on some short films. Uh, sh- she was um, she was Kate Blanchett's stunt double in Thor Ragnarok. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Um, but this is her first major motion motion picture as a stunt coordinator. Really? Yeah. Before this, she was did a Lifetime original movie that she was the stunt coordinator. Well, did on. she do any TV though? Um, no, this is IMDb, so it has everything. No, I know, but sometimes the TV is below the movie. I don't have I don't have pro, so oh. it's, it's all in the same thing. Sorry, that's okay. I mean, she and she's been acting a lot since you know through things as well. Uh, but yeah, this is her this is her first like um, major. Yeah, this is her first wow. Hollywood stunt coordinating role. Well, so congratulations crazy. to her. That's crazy. Well, I think overall she did a really really good job. Um, I loved the scenes in the saloons, mm-hmm. uh, the stunts for the, all the stunts with that were such classic Hollywood stunts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, what I can say is, um, one of my favorite gags was there was a fall from the top of a building and it went through the second balcony to the floor uh-huh. and boy, howdy, that was an actual fall. And I don't know how they handled it to the ground. Yeah. It was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me think of uh, J.J. Dashnall, who did it for MAG-7. He did the dead fall from the roof. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a serious, serious fall, and he did that. So that is pos- that is 99% likely that that was a stuntman who just yeah. ate it, y'all. And you watched it, and it was awesome. Mm-hmm. So I loved all those stunts that we saw in the, in the movies like yeah, the film within the film. I loved those. Yeah. I thought they were really classic, but they were also updated, right? It wasn't John Wayne punch. It wasn't John, you know, it wasn't yeah, there that. were a couple of John Wayne punches in there, you but have to have for a stylistic reasons. Right. But they were, it was an, an updated modern approach to that, mm-hmm. which she could have taken the view of, well, it's this style. So I have to do it in this manner. Mm-hmm. They were very modern stunts with that lens. And I just thought that was really smart um, her team looked great, mm-hmm. um, and we'll talk about um, the end later. Yeah, there's, that that is a going to be a big stunt conversation, I think. Yeah. So shall we take a little bit of a break, and we'll come right back. Yeah, let's take a break, and we'll get back into spoilers. Have you ever looked at all those Insta celebrities and been like, where do you get your raw jewelry because it's gorgeous? Or where did you get that female empowerment shirt because I need one? But then you think to yourself, I don't wanna go shopping because it's too selfish. What if I could tell you, you could get awesome apparel, awesome jewelry, and it gives back. You need to check out Rock's Jewelry Shop. That's right, Rock's, R-O-X. Rock's Jewelry Shop has amazing jewelry, and I just got a shirt that says, those females are strong as hell. Thank you, Kimmy Schmidt. You can check out Rock's Jewelry Shop online, and with code DATENIGHT, you'll get 15% off. So head on over to Rock's, R-O-X, JewelryShop.com, code DATENIGHT for 15% off. And we are back talking Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And as you... Hello! <laughs> as usual, we are in spoiler territory now. You have been warned. I would either recommend that you only listen to this if you have already seen the movie. Uh, hopefully if you've just seen the movie. Or if you're like, eh, I'm not going to go spend three hours in a movie theater uh, watching this movie. I'm fine with just listening to things. But regardless, you have been warned. And there is no way to talk about the end of the movie without just spoiling it. Correct. Yeah. So um, where do we want to start off with? I would like to start, I would just, let's talk about the end of this movie because I think it might take us to the end of today's 
episode. And mm-hmm. I think, so I had talked about, so I might go on a little bit of a spiel. I talked about how, like, it, so when the, at the beginning of the movie, we're being introduced to people and they were, remember when they had like that bing, bing, bing names under people mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden they stopped doing that. And it made me crazy because it made me start going, wait, am I supposed to know who these people are? And I didn't know. I heard Roman Polanski and I was like, are we supposed to know who Margot Robbie's character is? And you said, well, if it's Roman Polanski, then it's Sharon Tate. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Well, and as a as an armchair history buff, mm-hmm. uh, who's actually like I wouldn't say I've studied this, but I've read quite a bit on it. I just take for granted that that people don't necessarily know that Rowan Polanski was married to Sharon Tate and she was carrying his child when she was murdered by the Manson family. Correct. Right. I didn't just know that offhand. If I didn't, if I had known that there was going to be homework needed to watch this movie, I mm-hmm. would have done it because I started. I just got into this question spiral consistently. And then knowing that it was Charles Manson and that he was a really bad dude and killed a lot of people. But then I got confused because then I didn't as, so there's a break in that happens into Leonardo DiCaprio, Caprio's character's home. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's to say, so when that started going down, I just assumed that there was going to be even more killing to come. I th- and so it really, I, because I didn't know this history, mm-hmm. I really got taken out of it, and that was super distracting. I can see that. So I don't want to go, I don't want to revel too much in the murders themselves, like the real versions of it. No, I don't either. Basically, but it was just distracting. Yeah. Sharon Tate and four of her friends were murdered by the Manson family, as well as she was eight months pregnant at the time. Um, what happens in this movie is when the, the Manson family is going to kill them, uh, Rick Dalton, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, comes out and yells at them, and that sends them on a tangent of, wait, let's kill him. So at that point, that's where it splits off from history. Correct. Um, and then the attack is focused on him, on his house, as opposed to Sharon Tate's. So that's where like the wish fulfillment fantasy part comes in. Right, which is super interesting. And the way that they get to that point is actually really an interesting ride. Uh-huh. But I really feel like it was, and I completely hear you, and I love that the fact that the Manson family was doing all of this malarkey and the whole world kind of didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that we got the essence of that in the movie, but I think it was taken for granted that some of us don't study every serial ke- killer ever. Right. And that is and the, even after living in Hollywood. Well, and that's the thing about Tarantino movies in general is you kind of have to be on board with what he was into when he was writing the movie, when you're watching it, for example, the hateful eight, makes a lot more sense if you think about it in terms of John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, See, and I just took it as Agatha Christie's and then there were none. Right. I mean, you said it the best on The Hateful Eight. It's a Martin McDonough movie that has no payoff. Correct. Um, But like Death Proof, again, I'm not crazy about it, but if you think about it in terms of John Carpenter's Halloween, it makes a little more sense, or at least the first half of it. That that is two movies that are barely stapled together. Sure, yes. Um, but and then uh, so with this, you have to already have like, I think I'm not gonna sit here and be like, well, you would have liked it better if you would have done this, because I don't, I don't think it all hinges on that. I think you either connect with this movie or you don't. 
Um, but I think that this movie might have made a little more sense to you from the outset if you had done as much reading on 1969 Hollywood as I have. Right, and you really have, because I know that you've delved into a lot of this history. I have delved, I've delved into a lot of the stunt history in the 1960s because that's when the stunt when stunts kind of started becoming an actual thing, mm-hmm. right? We so, had stunt men in the Westerns, right? But then we've, but by the 60s, you know, they talk about a stunt gaffer. By this time, we are just now, we're at the verge of it actually being a stunt coordinator, right? right. So there's, a, I, I know the, I know that history, um, but I found it extremely distracting, not, I, I I just wasn't sure, and of of the uh, crazy people that like to kill other people and create cults, um, I really don't know a lot about Charles Manson. Right, real quick, just as we're talking about like stunt history, I think one interesting thing to bring up here uh-huh. is that the relationship between uh, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, who are Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, uh, respectively, is based off the relationship between Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and Burt Reynolds, A, was supposed to be a character in this movie. Uh, James Marsden was playing him, and then he got cut. Uh, and Burt Reynolds was at, himself was actually supposed to be cast as Bruce uh, Bruce Spann. Or not Bruce Spann, uh, George, George Spann. Uh, but uh, Burt Reynolds passed away right before they started filming. Shoot. So Bruce Davison stepped in. Bruce Davison. Or not Bruce Davison, uh, Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern. Yeah. I was say, I know Bruce Davison. I, do, I know you do. There, there are so many different names here that all sound similar. Oh, totally fair. <laughs> no, Bruce Dern was really, really good, but I could see how Burt Reynolds would have been awesome. Yeah. Um, it would have uh, been a really interesting role for that to have been Burt Reynolds' last yeah. role. Too. And as much as I would love to go into the history of Hal Needham and how he's the grandfather of stunts, we don't have time. Right. Another we do, day. We do need to circle back to Fireburns as we're yes. talking about so, this. So I'm going, so I needed to start with that. Yes. I, I'm going to let you just talk for a little bit. So I started with that because by the time that this, the killings started, first of all, second of all, and third of all, Brad Pitt is brilliant in this movie. And when they come in and, have, and start squaring off with him, it was great. Mm-hmm. And so they come in, they're threatening uh, Brad Pitt's character, who really, really, really takes care of his leading man, which I love. Yeah, I, I felt bad because I did think that Rick was kind of taking it. He was taking advantage of him in a few places. Oh, he was a 100% taking advantage but of him. But at the same time, they seemed to have this friendship that was actually genuine. Yeah. And Cliff actually seemed to care about Rick. And Yeah, and Rick put his you know he put his neck on the line mm-hmm. not real i mean not really that in that fantasy it was great well it was that so that wasn't the fan the fantasy um the flashback to the green hornet with bruce lee oh was that the green hornet yeah oh funny yeah because that was bruce lee's tv show yes um it, it was basically like the 1960s batman right um but yeah so that was that was Cliff uh, reflecting on why he, yeah, so, why it was okay that he was up on the roof at fixing the antenna. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. So like you and you mentioned this, I didn't get this. Whenever he was like, "Yeah, I talked to the gaffer, and he's a friend of Randy's from the Green Hornet." I didn't. I, at first, I was like, "Why would the gaffer have anything to do with this?" Because gaffers usually like we think of that in terms of lighting, right? Correct. But if you were talking about that, the term stunt coordinator wasn't there. It would have been stunt gaffer. That it was made, a stunt gaffer. Yeah, that made sense, and so. And so whenever he was like, yeah, it's not worth me asking about it. And then so that was Brad Pitt 
uh, essentially reflecting on why he understood that he couldn't even ask about it. Correct. Because he messed up so bad on the Green Hornet. Now, that was probably my second favorite sequence in the movie. I thought that was funny. Yeah, I, th- I thought that I thought that was great. It's just called manslaughter. Yeah. <laughs> There's a great line. They play this in the trailers, too, where Bruce Lee is talking. And they make Bruce Lee out to be, I don't know how true it was to actual Bruce Lee, but he's just a dick in this movie. He's not that... Um, everything I've heard about Bruce Lee is not that, like, right. not that. But he's talking about, uh, he's talking about, you know, my hands are registered as lethal weapons. If I fight you and I accidentally kill you, I go to jail. And Brad Pitt says, if you kill somebody in a fight accidentally, you go to jail anyway. It's, that's called manslaughter. It's <laughs> great. Yeah. But, so, uh, Cliff is such a good character. So mm-hmm. I do want to say that. And then there's massive killing that starts going on. Um, yeah. Essentially, the Mansons are going to kill... There's three Mansons that come in. Yeah, and apparently that's true to history. Um, the fourth one didn't run away like she did in this movie, but she stayed outside, and she ended up uh, testifying against the other three uh, in exchange for immunity. Okay. That's what happened in real life. In this movie, she got in the car and went away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so instead of going to the Tate house, they went to Rick Dalton's house, which is next door, and they were going to kill Rick, Cliff, and Francesca, uh, Rick's wife. Right. Yeah. So then all this craziness happens. The sequencing, so just if we were looking at the sequencing of the movement itself, it's great, right? It's mm-hmm. it's all over the place. The story of it is very clear. You know where everybody's body is at any given time, mm-hmm. which I really dig. Um, like, it's just, it's a very, very, it's very, very precise storytelling. So really good stunt coordination and direction and especially, especially the stunt coordination, because a lot of that is taking whatever the director wants, but making sure it still stays really clear in the mm-hmm. action. And I thought that was really, really great. Um, in a, a flashback with Rick Dalton in one of his movies, he burns some Nazis uh-huh. uh, with his flamethrower, and then the flamethrower circles back to burn one of the Manson kids. Yeah, you you see it. Uh, in the pool house at one point and you just assume that oh that's just a prop from the movie turns out it's a working flamethrower yes um which that was a great flashback when he was learning how to use the flamethrower he's like there's something we can do about this heat and the guy's like it's a (laughs) flamethrower no (laughs) yeah so uh fire burns um i get this uh question quite a bit about do you actually just light someone on fire the answer is yes and no, um, there, and I don't want to break this down so much that you want to go try it. So again, this is something that we train a great deal for. There's something called fire gel and it is a, it is a chemical compound that creates this really, really thick gel. Um, and it goes on skin. Um, it can go on the fire retardant clothing. So, um, in modern times we use Carbonex, no, um, or Nomex. Um, there's a few other, um, fabrics that can be used. Um, uh, there's, um, I, my, my safety suit is Aramid, which is, uh, it's a, so my safety suit's actually a flight suit. It's made of Aramid, which is military grade Nomex, Nomex and Carbonex. So those are the safety layers that are put on. Um, a lot of time, and then, so you've got your fire gel on your skin. Oftentimes the fire retardant clothing is soaked in the gel or water. Um, but for the bigger, and these were big burns, so they were soaked in gel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, one or two layers of that, of those clothing could be put on depending on how thick it is. I think for the burn in first man that my buddies did in the capsule, when Mm -hmm. you see the guys die in the capsule, 
Um, they get they get burned alive. I think they had three layers on, mm-hmm. but they were literally sitting in that capsule on fire. Right. And then you put the the wardrobe on. A lot of times, um, too, you'll put a really thin plastic sheeting on. Yes, plastic melts. Um, in a fire burn, you always want to be using natural fibers. You really, 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 really want to stay away from like polyesters and any synthetic fibers because they melt as opposed to a natural fiber that will just burn, right? Which is good. Mm-hmm. But that th- thin plastic sheeting helps keep the, the wardrobe from getting wet. The wardrobe goes on and then you paint on accelerant. And again, I'm not going to tell you what those accelerants are, but that's what do makes you not try this. Yes. But it's some, that's what makes you light up. Um, and you put the accelerant on anywhere you want it to actually keep burning. Um, and with that flame, th- so in that flamethrower scene, those were one multiple burns because there's multiple people, but you can only burn for as long as you can hold your breath. So, or if you have an oxygen tank on. So those guys um, in that scene probably did five to 10 burns to get that one scene for each guy. That scene alone was probably a million dollars. And then I'm thinking about the fire burn at the end with, um, I keep calling, I keep thinking her name is Max. Yeah. Um, I I can't remember which Manson family member that was supposed to be, uh, but the actress is Mikey Madison. Mikey Madison. Yeah. Or Max from Better Things. Um, But Mikey Madison. It was finally good to see somebody discipline her. (laughs) I I know. Heavens to Betsy. I do love that show. Yeah, I I do too. Uh, I I don't actually advocate setting bratty children on fire. No, heavens. You're fired. Yes. Um, Ah. Uh, so anyway, um, so it's this kind of the same setup, but what I think was really smart with her being in the pool is all she had to do was go underwater. Right. And how cool is that? Mm-hmm. Um, what I will say is her movement after getting attacked by the dog and then getting lit on fire and that precise movement that she did, I feel like it was bad direction. Yeah. I felt she like she she looked she looked dumb. Mm-hmm. It looked, it did look really weird and it did take me out of the moment. And I just, and it was so distracting that I thought I would just be, it would just, I, I just felt like it was such a disservice to her great performance. I felt, I feel like Mikey Madison is such a good, she's such a good actress. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she's, I love, I love what I love. I love that she really lives in these characters and she's so good and she's so good in this little juicy little role and then they made her movement that weird and I just was super disappointed and I thought it took away from that fire burn um which I I just was really bummed about and like because the way that she fell into the pool like and then the way that her arm stayed up and she was shooting it looked like rod puppetry to me it did like like, uh to kind of go back to one of my solo episodes uh for child's play uh, they were watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, which is super over the top and like, and just ridiculously, it's a horror comedy and it's so over the top and gross and they just do things to get a reaction out of you. Totally. One of the things they do in the very beginning is before they cut off two pe- the tops of two people's heads with a chainsaw is they have a uh, leather face essentially controlling a rod puppet of a corpse that's swinging a chainsaw. Yes, I remember that. And it looked like that to me. Yeah. So it was super distracting for such a great performance and such, mm-hmm. and it took away from the burn. Yeah. Um, and I thought the burn was really interesting because um, her, the performer, so, and that's always a stunt performer who does that. Those are really, really big stunts. Uh, 
And there's ways to breathe during a fire burn, but for the most part, you hold your breath and getting the oxygen tank and tubing. And sometimes you get a tube from your mouth and like, un, like out your sleeve. Like there's a thousand different ways you can think about doing these things. Mm-hmm. But these burns looked really like old school to me um, and really bright and really big. So there was a lot of accelerant involved. And especially when you start using somebody's face, um, you can also wear silicone. Mm-hmm. And um, silicone has a really, really high burn temp but so I'm not sure exactly how they handled the face and head burn uh, but it didn't really look like any CGI was there to enhance the burns it looked to me like that there could have been some CGI on that one but that was still real fire oh these were big fires. Yeah, it, it seemed I it, there were parts of the face that seemed to me that could have been CGI. Oh, I can see that. Um, I mean, they did. I mean, they did char it so that, yeah. and you see it actively char, which is CGI because yeah. that person's not charred. Mm-hmm. There's no reports that that person got injured. Yeah, and and that's what good CGI should be: is take the practical stuff and enhance it in ways to allow you to do things that you can't accomplish easily in the real world. Exactly. Um, what I did like is so they showed the everybody's corpses at the end. Uh, Brad Pitt smashing that one woman's head uh, like fifty times. Is that the part? So that's so this all this killing starts happening, and it's ultra graphic. And it's a movie where we were living in the Western world, which is a lot of like ah, you shot me. You know what I yeah. mean? And really big gags, right? We had massive falls. We had big fights. We had lots of fun. We had riding horses. We have killing of Native Americans. Super fun, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the movies was based upon the novel, The Only Good Indian is a Dead Indian. Yeah. That And yeah, that's not great. And this is all, and that example alone is like Quentin Tarantino, sometimes you need to be edited. Yeah. Why did that have to be said? Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. So when the, all the killing started and Brad Pitt sicks his dog on the people, mm-hmm. why did Quentin Tarantino have to use a dog that is widely associated with hurting people to hurt people? Now, I, I get that. And I and that's just the beginning of my problem. Uh, I'm sorry, please no, continue. No, no, no. You can answer. You can totally respond, though. I was going to say, I think I might have felt less strongly about that because the movie did take great pains to show how that wasn't an aggressive dog throughout the rest of the movie. So maybe that's why I didn't notice it. Yeah, but it. I hear this baloney all the time. So for no, those I'm, of you who have seen... I'm just seen, saying I don't think I noticed it because of that. I... It, t- it tipped me off. Mm-hmm. And the graphicness of all of that, because what people say about the pit umbrella... Um, because we hear it, uh, for those of you who've not seen pictures of Madison, Madison is a bully breed. She's not a pit bull, but she's a bully breed. And we're told all the time, oh, be careful with that dog. Their jaws are so strong. Any dog's jaws are strong. I know. Charlie, if Charlie didn't want to let go, Charlie wouldn't let go. I'd be more scared of the lab. So it's just overwhelmingly frustrated. And so I immediately was upset because... Uh, if it, again, if you're n- not new to this podcast, you know our feelings on adopting animals, and Jordan and I were our stances on that. But I just was like, it's. It, I would have felt that way if it was a German Shepherd. Like, pick a Jack Russell, mm-hmm. right? Like, pick something that was has levity to it. I would have, if I were going to choose a breed that isn't necessarily associated with attacks, but could do something like that, I would have done like a Golden Retriever. Oh, would have been. 
I can see why they didn't though, and and this isn't me making an excuse for that. Totally, I want to make that very clear. I, from a character standpoint, I can see why the dog's breed was that. And before the attack, it made it all made sense to me because they go to great pains to show that even though Rick is kind of over the hill, he lives in this nice house with a swimming pool and makes himself nice drinks at, uh, every night. And Cliff lives in a trailer behind the Van Nuys Drive-In Theater. Uh, where he's making himself macaroni and cheese and drinking cheap beer, and he's there with his with his pit bull dog. To me, that's the kind of dog a guy like that would have because he took it because nobody else would have wanted it. I, and well, the whole story with the dog leading up to that was brilliant. Yeah. I, I might be just overly sensitive to it, and I'm willing to admit that. But I was immediately like, okay, I don't. So I don't think that other people are going to read into that the way that we read into it. And again, I didn't read into it as strongly as you did, uh, and. You know, I have no real reason why for that. Um, I don't think that you're wrong, though. And it's kind of like whenever on Game of Thrones, when they, spoiler alert, for five years ago on Game of Thrones, uh, where they killed Ramsay Bolton with one of his dogs, they chose a bully breed for that, too. Right. And I was mad. Yeah, we, were, we both got mad for that. But the, that didn't seem to be a thing that the rest of the world latched on to. But you know why? Because they effing believe it. True. And... And immediately was like, really? So no. then it sticks it on the dude, bites his crotch. That's all fine. When he bites on the dude, it's one thing, right? He's just, it's leg, it's it's penis, it's mm-hmm. things like that. Fine. Then it goes and gets Max's character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when she's on the ground. Mm-hmm. Reaching for the gun. It gets her face mm-hmm. in such a graphic and violent way. It was horrifying to watch. No. It was literally horrifying to watch. And then Francesca like kicks the knife out of the redhead's hands and whatnot. And she tackles Cliff. And then he starts bashing her face in. Mm-hmm. And the way that bashing her face in, yes, that was eventually not a real human being. Right. Um, it was so awful and horrifying that it came so out of left field. It was so awful and they there was no precedent set in this movie for that it was i i was so mad because all it was was gratuitous i i do agree with that i think the violence in that scene was gratuitous uh and and it was and they knew that they they did it to the girls right you i could hear them being like oh no do it to the girls we never do that those things to the girls but the guy got off scot-free yeah, um, well, I mean, the guy he, the guy did still get his head bashed in. It just fair. It just wasn't the close-up that the redhead got. The close-up and literally watching her face go into her skull. Yeah, um, that, that was a little much. And a th- little? Uh, I mean, I'm trying to diffuse this so that way people I, still have fun listening to What this. I will say, though, is I, I'm, I am personally, I am actively upset. No, and I get that, and I'm not, I'm not taking that away from you at all. Um, I will say that, like, with The Hateful Eight, mm-hmm. even though the violence tended to come out of nowhere, it made sense. It was a build-up to that. Well, um, and we knew that people were going to be in this cabin, and mm-hmm. not good things were going to happen. Right. In Kill Bill, it builds up to that. Exactly. In Pulp Fiction, it builds up to that. And Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. It, look, we've set these tones yeah. and we live in these tones. I think one, I, one thing I could see Tarantino doing here is like, you know, well, I set it up at the beginning with Al Pacino's character being like, you know, I love the violence, the killing. And it, that's 
If that would would be the answer, that's not a good answer. I don't know what his it's answer a fine, would be. It's a fine answer. And if the answer is, well, the Manson family came in as if from nowhere and did unspeakable things. Mm-hmm. Okay. If that's, if that's the lesson, message received. But for those of us who don't really, you know, think of a life of crime and murdering people, I really would have gotten it if even if I didn't have to see her head literally invert into her face. So I think from a story standpoint, mm-hmm. um, I I can see maybe where it was coming from, from a story standpoint. I don't think that it matches with the ending of the, of the movie that we got. So let's say that the movie followed history, that this was a essentially a Sharon Tate biopic. Okay. Um, and the rest of the movie was, you know, her, you know, like so charmingly going into the movie theater to go see her own movie and being so excited when people uh, when people were laughing at her being funny on screen mm-hmm. and Tarantino getting off on seeing her bare feet right in front of what us. What was it with dirty feet in this movie? Again, it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. Dirty feet were a- everywhere. Anyway, and then it goes into the end and there was that level of violence there. From a story standpoint, that would make sense because again, what a lot of people talk about is like that's when the 60s died. And even from the movies, you know, once you got in the 70s, the violence got so much more graphic mm-hmm. and things got grittier. And it was, you know, movies like Taxi Driver. Totally. Um, so from a story standpoint, I can see that. However, since this ended essentially on a fairy tale of Rick Dalton going up and having drinks with Sharon Tate and the survivors. And, and possibly meeting Roman Polanski and changing his whole career. Yeah. Which Roman, was the dream. Roman Polanski doesn't become a sex monster. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Which, by the way, I will say, I I don't think we mentioned this. This is the first Tarantino movie that he did that he did without the Weinstein's because after Harvey Weinstein, you know, after that happened, he decided, no, I'm not working with either of them ever again. That's good. Yeah. So good on him. That's great. A few less sex monsters getting paid. Exactly. Um, uh, but but so do you understand what I mean? What I mean by that? I do, and I and I want to just re really support one thing you said was if it hadn't gone back into the fairy tale ending, right? If Rick Rick should not have been okay. Yeah. He left his wife, who was held at gun and knife point, and they had been home for less than twenty four hours. She moved her whole life from Italy. To you, the U.S., she is jet-lagged, and on her first night in U.S. soil, she was threatened and almost killed, and she and she took sleeping pills, and she was fine, so he's not going to be there for her. He's just going to go up. There's, again, huh? If you yeah. wanted to go to this place where this is so awful, then what on earth yeah i mean i'm not i'm saying all these things and i'm offering these justifications not really justifying it because i do agree with you is that even as somebody who and the listeners of this podcast know how much i love schlocky horror movies and you know like i've in the last year i have willingly rewatched texas chainsaw massacre too <laughs> Um, and for those of you who heard my review on child's play i was so giddily happy watching that movie <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, How's it doing on Rotten Tomatoes? Actually, not that bad. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, it's only the fanboys who don't like it. Oh, well, they always have a problem. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that even as somebody with me who I have a little more of a stomach for film violence like that, it was, seemed it seemed too much for me. Yeah. But I also want to caveat. That's also unfair to say that if you say I can stomach, 
I can really stomach some on set on film violence. Mm-hmm. I wasn't making a comparison between you and me, but I'm just saying that I almost left. Yeah. That was so gratuitous and unnecessary and it did not pay off. And when it didn't pay off at the end, I was mad. Yeah. I can see that. I can totally see that. Again, I think that this is just an incredibly subjective movie. Uh, I, th- I think that the people who are praising this movie, I think that they are seeing something, they connected with something that you and I didn't w- connect with it. Um, and I don't think that they're wrong. But the writing is great. The, yeah. How it gets from A to B to D was like, oh, wow. Yeah, again, Quentin Tarantino is a fantastic artist. Um, I don't think that there are other people who could do the things that he do he does and pull them off. I agree. You know, I mean, think about after Pulp Fiction, how many Pulp Fiction style movies people were trying to do and they just weren't as good. Oh, I, and, I completely agree. And in a lesser artist's hands, these movies would feel like ripoffs of other movies. Right. He, I just feel like he needs Jason Blum right now to go stop fixing things with money and ego. Yeah. And I just, it's something that I smelled throughout this movie and it, and $90 million. This movie was three hours long. Why? There was no need for this movie to be three hours long. I think the people who get the most out of this movie are going to be people who want to spend three hours in the, in the 1969 Hollywood. They want to be involved in the atmosphere. It's like what I talk about when I like a particular style of horror movie, is that as long as it set up, sets up the atmosphere that I like, I'm fine with the fact that it's not a great movie. So this is a movie for, and one thing I've been learning, like we were talking about last week, uh, for anime, as I've been learning anime. One genre of anime is uh, just, it's called Slice of Life. And it's just about normal people doing normal things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very different from the giant b- battling robot things. Right. Um, this, to me, is a Slice of Life movie. And it's for people who like the pace of that, who are just kind of going to hang out with the movie as opposed to be super engaged with the movie. Because this isn't a movie that has a plot necessarily. It's just a movie where things happen. Very much like Pulp Fiction like that. Pulp Fiction was just a movie where things were happening and these characters were responding to it. This is kind of like that. I just think that it's a little, it's more unfocused than Pulp Fiction well, was. Well, and it kept breaking its own rules. Yeah. We had day one, day two, that was it. Right? He had six months in Rome. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back to Rome, from Rome, and all this Manson stuff's going on. Right, we completely negated the rules that we set up, left the country, came back, violence happened. It would have been totally different if we went through a week of time and then this happened. Mm-hmm. Right, we stayed in this world, but it, it just, yeah. Um, so I think, I think we should probably start winding down now. I agree. Um, I think that with as Intense as our conversation just got about this movie, we should say a couple of things that we actively liked about it. Um, I really loved the fullness of Brad Pitt's character. Yes. I, he's definitely played a stuntman. Uh, I feel like I've met him. <laughs> uh, I feel like I've, I've worked for him before. <laughs> um, so I thought that was, I thought that was really great. Um, I, uh, I think his arc is my favorite. Yeah. Um, really, really, and truly, I felt like you really got, I felt like he was 
the star of this movie. I think so too. He was definitely a more engaging character than Rick Dalton was. Yeah. And, and Rick Dalton is an engaging character because you see this person struggling and you see the, the inherent Hollywood problem. And you know, this definitely feels like that. And I feel like we know this story Mm -hmm. well, continuing to live this life that we lead and, um, our concerns with our daily just being relevant. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think I think it did capture Hollywood in a gen, in a very generous way. Um, I did like that it didn't feel mean spirited about the industry. It wasn't mean spirited, but it was very factual. Yeah, like uh, one thing I was afraid of is that it was going to be like uh, that movie, the Christopher Guest movie, for your consideration. Oh, which is hard for us to watch. A because you know we've worked in this industry in some form or fashion mean. for the last ten years. Yeah, it's it feels mean. Yeah, it, this one didn't feel mean. Yeah, like the rule in our house is you can say anything you want, but if you really mean it, you can't say it. Mm-hmm. If it's not a true joke, you can't say it. Yeah. So, um, but that that I think that's my favorite part, and I feel and I loved. I loved in the theater seeing um, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate watching herself on screen, mm-hmm. and that where she has that where she's training for that like little kung fu part of the movie, and you see that joy of being like, I really worked at that and making, and everybody was just like, yeah, yeah, everybody was on board with. It, it felt like it felt like not only were we the audience watching her train with Bruce Lee for that part, but it's almost like the audience was watching it and they could see the hard work. Yeah. Like it that's not what was happening in the story, but like it, again, we talk about the magic and the communal, the communal magic that happens in a movie theater. Yeah. It was magic. Yeah, I loved that. So those are my two, I would say mm-hmm. those were, they jumped off the screen and it was great. I'm going to definitely agree with both of those. Brad Pitt was amazing. Margot Robbie was amazing. If they if they get some awards love, I will not be upset. I would not be surprised. Um, the two sequences that I my favorite sequences in this movie again were him uh, sparring with Bruce Lee, uh, and uh, by the way, what did you think of Kurt Russell as the stunt coordinator? Did he seem very stunt coordinatory to you? He, yes, he did to me too. He yes. ca- there were parts of him that reminded me of Anthony. Yeah. Um, oh right, and he had just enough apathy. Yeah. For an old school stunt coordinator. Mm-hmm. Just enough apathy. But that and whenever... And not wanting to talk to the costume girl. They still don't. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, that sequence and the sequence with uh, Brad Pitt at the Spawn Ranch. Yeah. uh, That was... Again, I would love to see Quentin Tarantino make just a straight up horror movie. I think that he would be very good at it. Because, again, to me, The Hateful Eight was a horror movie. Uh, And that sequence shows how he can build tension. Like, that felt like it was part of a horror movie to me. Yeah. And I would love to see what he does with one. Um, I don't think I would love it as much as my as my mind wants to see it, <laughs> but I would still give him my money. Totally. Um, okay, so at the end of the day, we obviously have some very complicated feelings on this. Would you recommend that people go see this movie? If you are a diehard Tarantino fan, by all means, go see it. Um, this might be one of the first ones that I might just be like, I mean, I I don't I think you're you'd be okay not. Uh. The first ones as far as a Tarantino movie or that we've done I mean, on this podcast? I, that we've done on this podcast. We've had movies that we don't think people should see. Oh, that's true. Holmes and Watson. Watson. Yeah. Get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I'm not going to tell people to not go see it, but if, if like we were at dinner with friends and they were like, what'd you think? And I went, mm, 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 mm. I would recommend people experience it. Again, like I always say, if you're into Tarantino, 
and you're into the history of Hollywood and filmmaking and especially like the old school studio system. Uh, I think that you could probably grasp onto this movie and like some things about it. And again, I think we're in the minority here because a lot of people really like this movie. I just was mad that I, w- I buckled up for three hours and the end was so awful with no payoff. And no, it just, and then like that's, I don't, that? I don't think, I don't think you're wrong. I would still say you should check out this movie. I think that there are going to be a lot of people who do like it more than we did. Um, I would be interested to watch it again sometime. Now, I am not going to watch it again with you. No, well, you won't because yeah. I don't want to. Yeah, so it, it would have to be, It's a, put it on the list of things that Jordan watches when Jessica's out of town. Listen, it happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm gone a lot, so Godspeed, um, sir. But no, I, I would recommend seeing this movie. Go for it. Yeah. I, I wouldn't stop you. Um, and I, and if you like this movie, I would love, I would love to hear more of why Mm -hmm. I don't, not because I think you're going to change my mind because I've had a lot of people tell me they love the hateful eight. Yeah. I still think they're wrong, but I would love to hear more about why you may like this movie. Um, and I do think this movie has a lot of merit, but I really have a, I have a hard time being like, well, I loved this part, but then at the end I didn't love it as much. Mm -hmm. I'm not that kind of movie watcher. I kind of, I'm there for the, I'm there for the fullness and if there's no payoff, I do get a little upset. Yeah. But that's steel. just me. Man of Steel. Oh, hunty. <laughs> oh. Have we ever done a Man of Steel rant on this podcast? I, I don't. We pro- we've had to. We're not doing it tonight. No, I'm not saying we should do it tonight. But like, there are, time, there are times whenever it's like, reactions that we've had to movies, have we really expanded on that on this show? Uh, and I'm sure we have at some point. We ha- we've had to have. Yeah. there. I think there have been moments where we might have done it in a funnier way than all, we ended up doing tonight. All I have to say is Man of Steel, the ultimate ripoff. Yeah. And again, because that one didn't live up to its own potential. Right. I'm forgiving of Batman v Superman. A, because the first 15 mil- minutes are brilliant. And B, because at least for the rest of the movie, I knew what to expect. Yeah. With that. Let's get out of here. And... We'll see you once upon a time on the next time.